The Zaddy Zone, welcome to the Zaddy Zone, Zaddy Zone, welcome to the Zaddy Zone. In your mouth right now, there are more bacteria than the entire human population. There are 38 trillion microbes living in, on, and around you that are critical to your health. This is your microbiome. This non-human part of you helps you with daily functions like digestion, supporting your gut-brain axis, and can even affect your complexion. The good news is, if you take care of these 38 trillion microbes, they'll take care of you. So how can we love these little microbes? A probiotic, but the problem with most probiotics is they don't survive the trip through the gut. And that is why Zaddy uses Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is nested in a capsule in a capsule delivery technology to ensure precision entry through the small intestine to your colon. Now, what does that mean? More satisfying, easy, and beautiful bowel movements so you can leave the toilet feeling like a lighter and lovelier human being. I've taken Seed for over a year now, and I chose Seed because it contains both prebiotics and probiotics. Cara and Tracy are on the Seed train too, and they're absolutely loving it. And Seed supports benefits in and beyond the gut, including gastrointestinal function, skin health, heart health, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, and micronutrient synthesis of vitamins B9 and B12. Some people report improvements in just 24 to 48 hours. So... Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com forward slash zaddy and use code zaddy to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com forward slash zaddy and use code zaddy. Mondays and Fridays, why is that? Um, You know, I have some control over how I schedule people's treatment cycles and I've just kind of found that when I schedule things that way, they they tend to have their procedures on days that work for their work schedules and like it kind of like leads to a certain flow in the office yeah uh for anybody listening dr ellen goldstein is joining us here on the zaddy zone today to talk all things fertility conception etc um dr ellen would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit tell us a bit about you sure thanks thanks so much for having me on i'm really excited to get to talk to everybody here today I am a, uh, a reproductive endocrinologist that is a, an infertility specialist. We are subspecialty OBGYNs, which means that the initial part of my medical training was having babies flying at my head all night long, taking care <laughs> of endless, endless yeast infections. Um, also, you know, GYN cancer, you know, the full breadth of gynecologic care. Um, but infertility is a specialty within the field. We do an extra three years of training to be able to take care of everything related to fertility and hormonal disorders for women. So I am actually the medical director of a brand new private practice in the middle of Century City in Los Angeles. It's just me. I do everything for my patients here. Uh, I get to practice exactly the way I want to. Great. So I'm guessing that like the fact that you're opening your own, you know, your own spot in LA means that you're needed here. And uh, uh, would, would I be right in assuming that there's been an uptick in cases of infertility, even in Los Angeles? It's really interesting. You know, it's a very busy market. There are a lot of fertility doctors here, but yes, mm-hmm. there's a need. Um, it, it was in- interestingly during COVID, um, all fertility practices all over the country saw um, an increase in demand. I think some of that was like existential. I think that people were at home, they were focusing on on what was um, what was important in their lives, making sure they wanted to get their 
family building taken care of. Yes. Uh, we really saw a lot of fertility care and also egg freezing um, in these last few years. Yeah, interesting. I've I've been hearing that there is a, an infertility, I don't know what, what to call it, an infertility crisis worldwide. Is, is that true or am I just hearing things? You know, I for me, what's interesting is like by the time they get to me, I'm focused on the patient in front of me and trying to get sure. that particular per- person or couple pregnant. So mm-hmm. it's not something that I'm super, super like expert at, yeah. but I tried really hard to take a look into it because I knew you were really interested in it. And one of the main things I found is that a lot of it is social, cultural, geopolitical kind of forces. Yeah. And that in many of the countries where the fertility rates are declining the most, it's because there's such poor support for women to be mothers and that they're not getting the kind of um, the kind of support that they need from the government, from their partners, from their families um, to even to even have an average of one child per person. You know, many places are the, the fertility rates are below one child, below below replacement rate. Um, and so uh, so I really looked into trying to figure out if it was a real fertility crisis or like a or whether it was due to cultural forces. Mm. Um, I think that certainly we are all seeing also a true decline in fertility from a medical standpoint. And that has a number of, a number of reasons. Do you want me to kind of go into them? Oh, please. Yes. Yeah, certainly. I think a lot of it really does have to do with increasing age. I mean, we're all just putting off everybody's professionals now and in in one or two generation every generation it seems like the average age of having children is just getting older mm-hmm. and so as much as that um that just increases the average age at which people are trying it gives more time for all of the medical conditions that can contribute to fertility issues to build up uh certain things like endometriosis is going to get worse with every year um, if you have that and also just simple age-related declines in fertility um, we can talk about sperm too. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about how, you know, male fertility influences all this too, because it's always a big focus is, you know, egg freezing obviously is a focus on female fertility. And I know that, well, men are 50% of the, uh, of the deal here. So I'd love to talk about how, how you know, what percentage is uh, maybe a good question is what percentage of the couples that you're seeing coming in the heterosexual couples in particular have the issue be with the male yeah it's usually like roughly one third of mm. the couples will have a an a, a clear issue with the sperm or the man Got it. Um, and then another third another third of couples have either a, a definable issue with both members of the couple or unexplained infertility, which is very, very common. And mm. that situation, it's like, we haven't actually figured out what the issue is, but it certainly very well could be the sperm, just something that doesn't show up on the, the available tests that we have these days. Yeah, got it. Actually, one more question back to the whole world issue. Uh, you kind of were mentioning that it's, it, to your mind, it's mostly a cultural thing more than it is a worldwide health problem you know declining testosterone rates could affect it uh you know is it in your mind more cultural than it is physical i think that's probably the consensus especially when you hear when especially when you're reading about particular places like like you had mentioned that you thought uh south korea and italy and like when i looked at when i looked those things up i found a lot more articles about the social and cultural factors mm-hmm. than i did about any you know but 
unfortunately, it's also just very hard to measure, right? Like we, we only are scientific methods have changed drastically in, in the la- in this last few decades. And it's possible that we just didn't have the right ways to measure what was a national fertility rate in some of these countries 40 years ago versus mm. what it is now. And then I imagine it was probably hard to measure then hormone, you know, what was a healthy hormone rate? Like what was a healthy not rate of progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, correct? For sure. Mm-hmm. And it's only been, you know, it's been fairly recently that we have more information about you know, these forever chemicals, the plastics that are in our, that our foods are wrapped in, uh, that could be contributing to disruptions and all of that. Yeah, let's just get right to that. I want to talk about that. What are the environmental factors that are influencing, you know, infertility? So the biggest one that I, that I have come across is, is plastics and these things that, you know, these little tiny microplastics that are just, that just stay in your system forever. Um, and that tends to be, that's also what, uh, the urologist that I've spoken to the male, the male fertility doctors, um, also think is contributing to declines and just decline in sperm quality. Mm. Um, so especially things like when you have plastic that's heated. So like if you're, if you're drinking from plastic bottles that are then warm in your car or in your food or you're microwaving it, those kinds of things can disrupt hormonal signaling. Um, and the other thing is even like, I'm totally not a cell phone engineer, but you know, just the, the cell phones in their pockets seems Mm -hmm. to be a pretty big, um, pretty big contributor. So it's like just trying to keep your cell phone like away from your man parts um, yeah. is probably a helpful thing. Yes, I, but just to clarify, the plastics and the cell, I mean, particularly what we're talking about now, the plastics and the cell phones, this is particularly in regards to male fertility? Mostly, mm-hmm. mostly. You're, yeah. I think you're also like, you're, it's, it's all things that, that nobody is studying and studying in great detail. Yep, yep. Yeah. It's also interesting about the plastic bottles thing is we're like, well, especially if they've been, if they're warm, but it's like, you don't know where a plastic bottle has been before you. You buy oh, it yeah. at the store, but that doesn't mean it hasn't <laughs> been left out in the, in the heat previously. So that all those, ast- very, uh, you know, all those plastics have yeah. leaked into the water that you're then drinking. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so interesting that you're bringing yeah. this up because um, – a friend of mine, a couple who are friends of mine in Los Angeles were having trouble, having trouble conceiving. And the doctor found that it was an issue with him. And Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the advice to him was stop drinking out of plastic bottles, get your cell phone Mm -hmm. out of the front pocket. Don't keep it in your front pocket and stop riding the Peloton so much. I definitely think he should ride his Peloton as much as he wants. (laughs) Really? I, I don't agree. Yeah, no, I, okay. I think exercise is really good. It's good for everybody. For um, sure. I mean, you know, I'm not his doctor, so I can't say, but like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not convinced about the data about riding a bike. I think that, that only people who are on a bike for hours and hours every day mm. might possibly comp- compromise their sperm. I think exercise is good for everybody. There's no doubt that exercise is good for everyone. He actually was one of those people who was on, he was doing multiple, <laughs> pel- multiple Peloton rides a day. Oh, did he just like to watch, did he like some of the female instructors? <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to have a Peloton. I'm aware of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he just like loves to exercise and like would do it multiple times a day. I think to quieten his busy brain. Um, but, but, 
something that the doctor mentioned was that a shortening of the sperm. Is that an actual thing, a shortening of the sperm? You know, we look at something called sperm morphology, which is the shape under the microscope. Um, and so what they're look- what's super interesting, actually, is that men are churning out millions and millions of sperm like every second of their lives. Mm. And they do it at the expense of perfection. <laughs> it's, qu- it's, it's quantity over quality for sure. Mm. And so what's interesting is that a normal sperm morphology is anything gr- 4% or greater. So as long as you are having 4% of your sperm or more looking normal, you've like passed with flying colors. Wow. And I will say that I I actually rarely see like I, a, a huge percentage of the semen analyses that I see have morphologies under 4%. And so you know, I don't usually look at it in such granular detail to tell somebody like what the actual shape change is because there are so many different, you know, they have like two heads or four heads or the tails are twisty or something. Uh, and like, it's really just That's horrifying. what percentage are normal. <laughs> it's amazing that we don't have kids with two heads or, you know. <laughs> well, well, the abnormally shaped ones, they're, the abnormally shaped sperm are like the wingmen. They're like, you have to have all those abnormal sperm to like, to like swim in a pack mm. to get to the, to get to, so that you're normally shaped. You know, it's like, you know, the most handsome fraternity brother is the one that like actually gets to the bar and gets the girl, but everybody else like, yes, <laughs> yes. Know, helps them get there. Helps them get there. So what happens if a, a, an abnormal sperm reaches the egg? They usually have trouble getting in there just by default. They just can't make it in there. You know, that is a super interesting question and like a v- area of very hot debate. Oh. Um, what we typically think in our field um, is typically that eggs and sperm and even embryos are so delicate that they're really all or nothing. You know, like an egg or a sperm or an embryo has to be quite close to normal um, to even function, you know. Um, And so typically, you know, if an embryo can't make a baby, it's going to either not implant or it's going to cause an early miscarriage. And so Mm. there's, there's all these checks and balances that go on in, in human reproduction, which is a a highly inefficient process. So um, we typically think that the the bad sperm just aren't really going to get there or do anything. Um, Definitely. We are really looking very closely if there is a sperm contribution to things like recurrent miscarriage or recurrent fertility treatment failure. Um, But the jury's still kind of out on it. And we, in our, in, the field of reproduction and in the field of urology, we debate it with our between ourselves a lot. Yeah, got it. Now I heard this thing ages ago, and you could tell me if this is true. There's a few questions I've got like this, where it's things that I've heard that I'm not sure if they're true. Is it true that an egg can push away a sperm if it doesn't think it's correct, or like not take it in on purpose because it's not of a high enough quality? How would you test that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I'm just like. Uh, <laughs> It's uh, doc. Don't shoot yeah. the messenger here. This is like table talk. This is dinner dinner table conversation for me I know. that I've heard over years, and I'd love to know if it's true. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think to an extent it probably is. Right? It's probably the same thing that I just said. Right? That that if you have an otherwise fertile couple and she has healthy eggs, um, if the sperm isn't functional, it's not going to get in there. Uh, and I think that maybe. Um, that, that it is it is a very important crosstalk between the egg and the sperm and that potentially these abnormal sperm are just not talking properly to the eggs. Mm. My friend actually brought up an interesting point with me. She told me about an ex-boyfriend that she had who um, whenever they would have sex, she would get a uh, she would get kind of a rash breakout. 
And she went to the doctor mm-hmm. and the doctor gave her antibiotics to deal with it, to take every time she had sex with him. And yeah, that seems to me like what we're talking about, where it's like these two people are not supposed to be mating. Do you think it was antibiotics or do you think it was actually like an immune suppression? Like I suspect she, like maybe she had like an allergy. That can totally happen. Right. And that's what I'm, I guess, I don't know the specifics, but it would be that it would be that her body and his body are not supposed to be mating. Yeah. There are certainly people that have allergies to components of, I don't know that it's going to be quite such a, so granular that like, if you put their eggs and sperm together in a dish, they wouldn't work. Mm. But I think it's more that there's, she has some allergy to a component of his seminal fluid, um, which definitely can happen. But that's so. Did they? Uh, that's did they, wild. Though. Did, did they listen to nature? Did they yes, listen to nature? They broke, and they broke up. up or yeah, they-, they broke up. Which I think is the it's it's that was the correct thing to do. But I think that you're, I mean, you know, you could. I maybe I'm getting woo woo here, but I think that your body often is giving you signals of. I mean, for instance, smell. I mean, that's not woo woo. Pheromonally, like what you match with and what you smell, and you go, yeah, that's it. You know, and and then you can smell people and go, that's not it, and and that's actually listening to your body in a way. You don't think that's yeah. woo-woo, do you? Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's uh, that's that's human attraction for sure. Yeah, Doc. Come on the woo-woo side. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to walk a balance today, Luke. I'm walking the balance between like my, my Western medicine and your woo-woo. How am I doing? <laughs> yeah, no, you're doing great. You're doing great. So uh, we covered um, plastic, phones, Peloton, you're not, not a problem with unless you're on it for too long. Are there any anything else? Like, are there any other env- environmental factors that you're aware of that can affect fertility? Well, the unpopular one is the the drugs and the marijuana. Oh, you want to oh, go oh. into that? Yes, please go into it. Yeah. <laughs> It's so hard. I have no idea what to say. I feel like 70% of the people that walk into my office while they're like actively trying to get pregnant and they're devastated that they can't, they're also like hitting, they're also smoking weed every day. Wow. Wow. And I just like can't imagine that that is healthy for your eggs and your sperm. They're, they're, they can't, you know, they're, they're, it makes them a little bit wobbly and they can't get to where they need to go, I think. Okay, so that's not something that you can't you, you can't imagine why you actually know that that's true, do you? There's n- there's a, not great evidence for that either. It has not been well studied. I think Got we're it. we're hitting on a lot of things that don't have great studies behind them. And so you'll actually find you can find data for both. You can find data that people who smoke marijuana are fine, and you can find data that it impacts both egg and sperm quality. But something that you've noticed at your in your clinic is that people coming in who are having trouble getting pregnant smoke a lot of pot. Yeah. I think people in LA just smoke a lot of pot. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a very California doctor issue. Like yeah, a lot of people exactly. smoke pot in this state. I mean, now that it's legal. And so that's really interesting. What about alcohol? Um, you know, that's an interesting one. I think very heavy alcohol consumption for sure, or even mm-hmm. or even not very heavy, just heavy, moderate to heavy alcohol consumption can mm-hmm. definitely impact both female and male fertility. But this is a hard one because I think, and this is a, this is a good segue into talking about like, just how much control do you have over your own fertility? Yeah. And so I I am not a doctor who goes crazy with telling my patients to change a lot of things in their lifestyles. Yeah. People come to me on these crazy diets, no alcohol, no caffeine. Um, and for me, I think that's, you know, life without coffee is like not worth living. Yes. And so why, you know, the, the more you try to 
to tell your patients that they have to adopt this insane, like live like a monk while they're trying to get pregnant, um, the more they're going to blame themselves thinking that they have control over something that they don't totally, that they don't have often very much control over at all. And the more they're going to blame themselves when you, you know, if something doesn't work and they're not successful and then they're going to be like, if I hadn't had that one cup of coffee last week, which is ridiculous. You have to like have some, I have, people have to have some grace for themselves and there's so much, it's such an emotional process. There's so much self blame going on. Like I think Mm. it's totally okay to have some wine here and there. Yeah. They shame spiral is what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, they did something wrong and they feel like they've morally failed and right. that's why their body isn't doing what they want it to. And really, and I think what you're talking about too is also there's a huge amount of stress that goes into being having the perfect diet and having the perfect lifestyle. And if you're stressing yourself further, I'm sure that would affect your fertility. So what I say is like, don't stress about your stress. You're just compounding it. It's not, you know, everybody's got stress. And if you think about it, right, like, like, yes, when you're having trouble getting pregnant, you're going to analyze your life and you're going to find all of these sources of stress. But like, I guarantee you that like that your neighbor down the street who didn't have any trouble get, getting pregnant also has, you know, family stress and stress mm-hmm. with her with her job and everything. And so I, I really think it's that people are sort of assigning blame to all of these normal parts of their lives. And then they just, again, stress spiral and it becomes just so miserable. When I'm working with people, I just have to make sure that they can get through their daily lives. Um, Mm. I do a lot of validation, validation and support and making sure that people can just live their lives while they're going through this. Oh, that's great. I love that. So I, I guess you're, you're probably into giving measured advice. It's not too crazy. It's not living like a monk. Can you give us like an insight into what that might be? Um, like smoking not once a day, but maybe once a week, like cutting back on alcohol, (laughs) not cutting it out. Yeah. Right. I mean, the marijuana, I tend to tell people to really stop if they can. Mm. Um, but the alcohol, you know, a glass of wine a couple times a week, totally fine. Coffee, one or two cups a day. Uh, normal exercise, honestly. There are certain times during fertility treatment when you have to curtail your high-impact exercise. But really, cardio is not hurting anybody. It's really good for your stress. And there, you'll, you'll get all kinds of this advice, usually very paternalistic, like from old old male doctors that are like, you know, if you go for a run, your uterus is not getting blood flow. Like, it's like ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so you definitely need to be able to live your life. I'm always amazed at hearing the advice of old male doctors to women about women's health issues. Like, you know, for instance, in the, in the birthing room, it's like, put your feet in the stirrups and spread your legs. And it's like, that's the last place I want to be when I'm giving birth to a baby. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, th- this might be a bit of an uncomfortable question, but is there a, an effect uh, on um, obese individuals and fertility? Is there a, a, do they relate in any way? Yeah. Um, certainly when you do look at, we do have good studies to show that women who are overweight or obese have lower fertility rates in general, and they mm. also can often have um, lower success rates with fertility treatments. Um, it's, First of all, it has to do with just the impact of the extra body weight on your on your hormonal regulation and your ovulation. Mm. So interestingly, what happens is that fat cells make estrogen. 
And so when you have higher, and then, and then what happens is normally in a normal hormonal cycle, only the ovaries make estrogen. You go from a very low baseline level when you first get your period, your one, your, in a given month, when you first get a period in a month, your, then your one egg grows. And as your egg grows, it makes estrogen. And then that signals to your brain to ovulate that one egg. And then the estrogen and progesterone levels kind of hum along for the last two weeks of your cycle. And then if you're not pregnant, you get a period. And so what happens is that extra weight that people are carrying around makes enough estrogen to disrupt the signaling between the brain and the ovary. And so there's kind of two different forms that can take. One is sort of, it is the very clear kind of polycystic ovary syndrome picture, which is incredibly common about one in every eight young women are going to be on the polycystic ovary syndrome spectrum. Now, not every person with PCOS is obese at all. There is a spectrum of likely a whole bunch of different causes Mm -hmm. and plenty of people have PCOS and do not actually have a weight problem. But, um, but there is a correlation where there are many people with PCOS who do have a weight problem and that sort of exacerbates it. And the really cool thing is that if you are PCOS, if you have PCOS and you're overweight, If you go and exercise and sweat and get your body to use its fat stores a little bit, even losing something like five or 10 pounds, a huge proportion of those people start to either ovulate on their own or they respond much more easily to ovulation induction medications and get pregnant without significant treatment. The best, it's such a hard conversation to have with people. And I have to have this, the, um, I have to be so careful when I bring it up. Mm. Um, but sometimes with the right receptive person, I, it's such a win. Recently, I had somebody where um, I, I, I barely had to say, look, you know, you're, you're, you have prediabetes. Um, she's like, she's like, you're right. You're 100% right. I'm going to the gym. I'm going to my primary care doctor. And within a couple of months, she was pregnant. It was amazing. Amazing. That must be so rewarding. Yeah. Sorry, you know, it wasn't a couple of months. She lost, she lost like 40 pounds mm. and then a couple of months after that. And then, you know, it was within, it was within, it was under a year. Within under a year, she had lost 40 pounds and she was pregnant. I was so proud of her. Wow. That's amazing. So do you usually send like in an, inst- an instance like that, would you send them to a primary care doctor for advice on how to, you know, lose weight or would you give them some measured advice on how to lose weight? Kind of like the alcohol thing, like cut back on it. Like how do you usually go about that? That's such a good question. I think it's very, it very much depends on the person and what resources she has. Mm. Um, I have, I have such excellent colleagues in the field of um, weight loss medicine and nutrition who work very closely with people who need that kind of support. And the problem is, is that, you know, like everybody in LA, um, they run a good business and they're cash pay. And it's like the same, you know, that the people who need it the most are often the people who can't afford it. And so um, that's when I really try to make sure that people have that primary care. Uh, But then of course, access to primary care is also horrible too. People are so, um, you know, the primary care doctors are so busy that they have a hard time giving the kind of attention that that patients like this need. And it's just, uh, so I try my very best to, to be supportive. Amazing. I, I have a lot of friends who are, uh, especially my wife's friends, who are of a certain age and uh, don't have a partner yet, uh, but they want to at one point be mums and they're freezing their eggs. Is there an ideal age? Because we talked about age before and age factors. Is there an ideal age to freeze your eggs? That's, a, that's an awesome question too. So there have been really, really good 
studies on this showing that there is kind of like a sweet spot because this is a study of both of cost effectiveness and um, how likely you are to actually need your frozen eggs. Mm. So the reason why egg the reason why egg freezing is a really good idea for people to think about is that as we get older, we have fewer and fewer genetically normal eggs in our ovaries. So the way that ovaries age is that your all of the eggs in your ovaries have been sitting there since you were a fetus in your mother. So the like so like my daughter, the egg that made her formed in my mother. So like it's a there's this very cool generational effect there. Um, yeah. So our eggs, our eggs sit in our ovaries from the time that we are a fetus and the DNA has to sit in the middle of the egg lined up. And so when that egg actually, you know, once you're 35, 36, 37 years old and it's time for that egg to ovulate, it has to separate its DNA right down the middle so that it has the right amount of DNA to make a baby. And as we get older, now these statistics are very, very depressing. And that is one thing that I know it, people really don't wanna hear that their age is the most important factor here. And it, it's a disconnect certainly between the general public and between a doctor like me, where I feel like when I say that your age is the factor, I'm, it should, you know, I'm not blaming you for anything. It should yes. be an, an easier thing to hear, but it's very hard for people to hear. Um, and as we get older, when you're under 35, 50% of your eggs are genetically normal. And it's 50% whether you're 23 or 32, it doesn't really decline until you're 35. And at 35, it goes off a cliff. By 38, only 25% of your eggs are normal. By 40, only 10% of your eggs are normal. And by 42, only 3% of your eggs are normal. Wow. So now, if you get lucky and you get that normal egg, that's a healthy baby. There is no global decline in your egg quality. It's a shifting of proportions. Sure. And so what you're trying to do is find that good egg as you get older. And so what happens is, Certainly many women who are 37, 38, even 40 won't have trouble getting pregnant. And that's amazing. But if they have trouble, then often if they have frozen eggs from when they're younger, those younger eggs can help me treat them because they have that higher proportion of normal eggs. So that was a long-winded intro no, that was great. to your question. That was, that was great. <laughs> um, yeah. Super interesting. But um, the optimal age, <laughs> the optimal age, I have a lot to say. I'm sorry, Luke. You have to tell me if I'm like if I'm over talking here. Oh no, I I I like the way you get through things. It's like we've we, we've okay. we've done an hour podcast in half an hour. That's what I'm loving. Please, <laughs> please keep going. Maybe I maybe I talk I talk too fast. Also, no, it's great. Um, the the optimal age is probably 32 to 33, hmm. and I'll tell you why. Um, if everybody started freezing their eggs at 28, um. Yes, you'd have a lot of good eggs in the freezer, but you'd also have a lot of good eggs that people would never come back to use because a high proportion of those people are going to try to get pregnant when they're 32 or even 35 and not have any trouble at all and never need those eggs. Mm -hmm. Whereas if, if people don't start thinking about freezing until they're 37, well, a lot of those people are going to need their eggs because if they're thinking about it at 37, it means they might not be trying until they're 40 or 41, and then they're going to really significantly 
possibly need those eggs. But the issue is that by 37, remember, I already said their eggs have the, there's a lower normality proportion. And so the sweet spot where, you know, at least a decent number of people might come back to use them um, and also still have good eggs is that age 32, 33. And another interesting thing is that nationwide, um, probably only about 10% of people who have ever frozen their eggs in this country have come back so far to use them. Only 10% of the people who have frozen eggs come back to use them mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear, to talk about aging in this way, because, you know, 30, it's quite specific, the age, but it's like, it must be dependent on the individual, how old their organs are, you know, do you speak in that sense? Like in the way that like organs can be different ages within different people? It's a really, really good question. And I think it's, it's not going to be a popular answer among your listeners. Hmm. While I absolutely agree with you that there are there's such a difference in general health, but across individuals, depending on how well they've taken care of themselves, their diet, their exercise, all of those things. The ovaries, like <laughs> ovaries don't age like that. <laughs> it's like ovaries really, it's just the chronological age. And, um, and another thing that's super interesting is that that normality proportion holds for everybody everybody has different egg numbers mm. but the proportion of normal eggs is different and i'm oh, sorry it's the same across ages um and the other thing is that your your general health also doesn't correlate with your egg numbers so this is a lot of it's it's not a popular answer i know but i have to this is the kind of conversation that i have to have with people all of the time mm. um because as you can imagine, they really go into a spiral of, but I'm healthy. You know, what did I, yeah. Why have I, I been healthy? You know, why, why have I been right. good? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Gosh. Amazing. Well, what about, um, are there any like general supplements that you will give men and women that, um, you know, full disclosure here, we, we met via WeNatal, who I'm a big fan of. Mm-hmm. They do a, mm-hmm. they do a, a great uh, fertility kind of multivitamin. Also, uh, it's, you can be used after you give birth. I forget what that's called. It can be a prenatal and after, whatever. Um, are th- is there a supplement that you like to s- prescribe just generally, like a multivitamin that's super helpful for, uh, for men and women? Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, there is, so for, first of all, all women who are trying to, who are possibly going to get pregnant anytime soon should be taking a prenatal vitamin like we natal, which is an awesome one. Um, it needs to have folic acid in it or methylfolate because you, um, you need to have a form of folate in order to make sure that you reduce your risk of having a a spinal cord issue with the baby. Mm. And that needs to be in your system for several months before you get pregnant. So it's a sort of a planning thing to do. Um, now antioxidants are very helpful for both egg and sperm quality. So, um, CoQ10 is a big one that, Mm. that seems to really be permeating the general psyche right now that everybody feels like they need to be on CoQ10. CoQ10 is a, is a, is sort of a cellular metabolism aid, um, and can help really kind of just help your cells make energy Mm. efficiently and with fewer, um, uh, sort of compromising byproducts. And so many people are taking CoQ10, both men and women. Cool. The best thing for sperm is also as antioxidants. So they can take those kinds of supplements, but I also, I believe in, 
in food as medicine. And so um, blueberries, pomegranates, and acai berries are amazing for sperm. Those are antioxidant foods. Dark chocolate, would you add that to the list? Sure, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I reckon you're just agreeing with me because you like dark chocolate. (laughs) I like milk. I like milk chocolate. (laughs) Uh, I mean, everybody (laughs) likes milk chocolate, but if you're going to go health, you get a dark chocolate. Because, I mean, it is high in polyphenols. You can also be high in other heavy metals, but you know it, it's most, it's pretty high in polyphenols. Yes, but blueberries are pretty fantastic powerhouse uh, for that type of thing. So folate, antioxidants, uh, CoQ10. You mentioned anything else? Um, those are really the big ones. The other cool one is melatonin. There's some good. Um, mm. There's some decent research that melatonin can help with fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really unclear whether it's like actually helping with egg quality or whether it's just sort of you know general. You sleep better. You sleep everything. well. Yeah. I love. Melatonin is like the best drug. I don't. It makes me feel I have the best dreams. <laughs> I don't, how does it affect you? It's the best. Now you're talking about you're taking melatonin. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Wow. Well, doctors are pretty. I mean, I've talked to a few doctors on here, not fertility specialists, who kind of warn against taking melatonin because it can interrupt your body's natural ability to make melatonin. And when you take melatonin, you can take so much of it that your body's like, oh my gosh, you just gave me nine milligrams of melatonin. And my and your body only naturally makes what? Like, I don't know, one one gram. Which, a I tiny know. little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but you just love it. <laughs> so <laughs> you love it. Sorry, I, I came That's down okay. on marijuana and I said I like to take melatonin as a drug. <laughs> wow, naughty, naughty. I mean, but melatonin is naturally produced in the body. It's a, it's the hormone of darkness. It's referred to by many people. So like just getting in, in the dark, making sure that your like lights are turned down. Overhead lights in particular, I find at night particularly keep me awake. So we put on lamps that are like kind of below head height that are facing down so that we can see, but we don't, you're not getting it in our eyes. That's how I try to naturally produce melatonin. But Dr. Ellen, you're taking melatonin and that's, you're loving it. So amazing amazing um i always have wanted to ask somebody this so i've i've heard i have two sons and uh, i'd love to be a father to a girl one day and there's a lot of debate amongst parents whether it is possible to have to conceive with a sex in mind is it possible (laughs) no i wish (laughs) i have heard so many things about the sex position and the timing yeah and like these caustic douches that people are doing have you heard about those no could tell me what that is tell me what it is vinegar maybe are they doing i i don't know i'm not yeah okay interesting like apple cider vinegar or white vinegar there's a many different type of vinegars i think apple cider but don't quote me (laughs) but no it's unfortunately you can't even you know there's also this super interesting concept that you could take sperm and spin it in a centrifuge of course this involves you know going to a doctor but Mm. you have to spin the sperm in a centrifuge because the x sperm x bearing sperm and the y bearing sperm you can separate them just a little bit it it doesn't work so um, (laughs) and which sperm would make a boy and which sperm would make a girl uh, so an X, X sperm would make a girl and a Y sperm would make a boy. Because you know it's all the man. You know every woman's eggs is only X chromosomes. It's, you know, if, you, if you're having the sex that you don't want, it's all, it's all on the man. <laughs> well, what about, um, what about the, I mean, because this, this is where we, as parents, when we're at the park and we're talking about this stuff, we say like, oh, but in China, during the one child policy, when everyone wanted a boy, they, had, they found a way. You're saying they didn't find a way. They were terminating a lot of pregnancies. Oh. Yeah, it's awful. Awful. Ah, 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 yeah, ah, sorry. Wow. No. 
Okay. Yeah, so, really bad. Yeah. And that's why it became illegal to do, it, it became illegal in China to do any kind of ultrasound. Like they weren't, the doctors weren't allowed to tell people the sex of the baby they were carrying with ultrasound. Gosh. Became, they really became a lot going on, yeah. Gosh, we can't end it here, Dr. Ellen. We have to find another. <laughs> it's so depressing. We have to find another topic. So tell, tell me about, a, if you wouldn't mind, maybe a, a, a recent rewarding experience you've had with a client. Oh, wow. There are so many. Um, yes. So I think that one of the things I want to talk about is that it's so important to personalize your patient's treatment, mm. um, and, that, and to make the right decision for people, um, that's not just based on some kind of protocol that everybody needs the same thing Yeah, because everybody needs, everybody needs something different. And so, um, I have had, let's see, an, a, a rewarding one recently. I had this lovely, lovely couple that, um, just through a confluence of circumstances, she didn't have any obvious infertility factors, mm -hmm. um, but her husband had extremely low sperm count, like almost no sperm. Mm. Like literally when he would give a sperm sample, they would be finding one sperm, two sperm, wow. you know, under the microscope. Yep. And so um, their only choice was to do IVF for in vitro fertilization. When you have that, when you have such few sperm you and you have to pick them up under the microscope, you have to have an egg in a dish to be able to fertilize. You can't just like let them loose in her body. They'll never find the egg. Yes. So she was fertile, no fertility issues, but she had extremely low egg numbers. And when you have extremely low egg numbers, it's not the same thing as infertility, but it makes fertility treatment harder. And so it makes fertility treatment so inefficient and frustrating. And this couple, they were like, no, like we want to try this. We want to do IVF so that we get my egg and his sperm and we're going to make this happen. Um, and we're going to, um, and we, and they tried it. And I think we tried it twice. And both times she like, because her numbers were so low, IVF is not a perfect treatment. Like mm. when you're dealing with very low numbers, sometimes you just don't get an egg out of the body. And, um, I finally said to this couple, the answer for you is going to be donor sperm. I think that you have, this is like, I'm sorry, this is probably not what people want to hear either. It just was such an amazing story because this couple now has this beautiful child and it was, you know, so mm -hmm. I said, the answer for you is going to be donor sperm. You are going to get pregnant inside your own body without manipulation. And they, you know, and, and I have personal, my patients are like my friends. She says, doctor, I want you to understand why I'm so, I want to use my husband's sperm. Like he's my high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. We're both only children. And I said, a hundred percent. I have, I'm never, ever discounting that. But I think once you have a baby in your arms, you are both going to realize that that baby came into being because of your tireless effort to bring her to the earth mm. and your husband just doesn't have any sperm. Um, and so that's what they did. And donor sperm, beautiful baby. She like looks just like both of them, you know, it's, and no, and nobody cares. It's like that, uh, like, I don't know how you feel about this too, but it's like, now that I'm a mom, I think that I, I'm much more open to the concept that like a baby is like a ball of love and like mm. what you, it doesn't know where its DNA came from. And, uh, you know, we have to always sort of focus on what is it that we want and what we want is to be parents. What we want is to is have that experience and to bring that love into the world. Yeah. And the way that you connect with them is doesn't matter that like it's, I'm, I don't connect with my son because he's my son. 
genetically, I connect with him because he's gorgeous and so cute. Like it's like, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like with a puppy. Like I don't, my dog, I don't, I don't love the dog cause he's not, he's yeah. clearly not of my bones. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I love him cause I, he's there, you know? Um, yeah, that's so true. And that's so interesting. Are there, are there, I hear that actually, you know, in regards to sperm and sperm quality, that actually it can be, it can very quickly get better, much quicker than anybody thinks. It's like it's like it, within a few months you can have much healthier sperm. Is that true? Um, if you don't, I mean, if you don't have any kind of underlying significant issue, mm-hmm. and you just uh, and you just work on lifestyle factors and all those antioxidant superfoods, then sure. Wow. Yeah, I definitely I've seen that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Best back to what we we're saying about the two kids. We, we I have some of our best friends are a gay couple, and they just had a baby. And you know, so it's clear that she's a little girl, and she's clearly one of theirs. You know, uh, but but the way that in which they both loved it, it just sends home what you just said. Actually, yeah. I never even thought about it. I've always wondered if it would be awkward, but it wouldn't because it's like that's whether they're mine or not. They're mine, and I love them, and they smell so good, and they're so cute, and that. And once yeah. you bond, <laughs> once you bond, there's no difference. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I try to like, I have so many, you know, it's such a heavy field. Uh, off, look, it's such a happy field. Yeah. It's also heavy a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. I try really hard to zoom out and say like, hey, what, what do we want for you? Uh, and how are we going to get you there? Yeah, got it. Uh, Dr. Ellen, you seem like a great doctor. I'd love for you to be my doctor if I ever needed to come and see you. Um, how, what is it like? What's the experience like if somebody comes to your clinic? Let's just say you come as a couple. What what happens? We come in, we sit down, we talk to you. And what's the kind of process like? Yeah. So I start with a like comprehensive evaluation of mm. everything there is to know because I want to know about every single pregnancy you've ever had. I want to know about every single period you've ever had, all of any medical problems in the past. I don't know what you do for work. You know, I want to really know, know my patients sure. inside and out. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many things that are going to come into play to taking care of the whole person and the whole couple that I'm going to find out in that initial visit. I always, always, always do an ultrasound of the female partner at every single visit, first visit. You know, a lot of people transitioned to uh, telehealth and they haven't come back from it. Yeah. And I, that you can't, you can't do this without laying hands and laying eyes on the person that you're going to take care of. I learn so much about somebody. I I pick up so many things by looking and seeing what her, what, what do her insides look like uh, to be able to start to plan. I mean, I literally say now we're going to pause. So I don't have to speak in hypotheticals anymore because otherwise you go off in this like hypothetical uh, talk that like, is just wasting everybody's time. So if I, I'm going to tailor, I tailor things directly to my patients the minute I start working with them. Um, and then it's really just about hands-on personalized care. People want to know that not only did you give them the very best chance of having a baby, uh, just, but also that, that you didn't miss anything. You didn't overlook anything that every single detail was taken care of. And that's how I really make sure that I practice in my office. I do everything myself. I'm totally unable and unwilling to delegate <laughs> to some kind of, to a PA or an ultrasonographer or anything. Like yeah. I, I catch things all the time. Well, Dr. Ellen might sound uh, like she's uh, telling fibs about herself right now, but I'll tell you in doing research about Dr. Ellen, I looked at her reviews and everybody said how lovely it was to come and meet you. And they all said that they felt like they were your friend by the end of the process. 
So I think that says a lot about you. And uh, thanks so much for coming on my show, The Zaddy Zone. Yeah, this was really such a wonderful experience. I hope it was helpful for everyone who listened. Yeah. Uh, is there a way that we can keep in contact with you? Yes. Uh, so my website is beverlyfertility.com. Mm-hmm. And you can find us there. Okay, perfect. You do, what about Instagram? Can we follow you there? Or is there, are you on any of the platforms other than that? <laughs> Also on Instagram at Beverly Fertility. Um, I am working on a new line of videos where I'm going to talk about all of the hard questions and all of the hard, you know, the, the tough things that I have to deal with. Yeah, good. You should because I looked at your Instagram and I saw some of the videos and I was like, more. We need more of that. Yeah, no. We need more. Out in the world. <laughs> Thank so, you. so you've realized that. But awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellen. Appreciate you coming on. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Zaddy Zone, I encourage you to subscribe and rate our podcast five stars. And if you feel so generous, please write a review. Say how much you loved it. Um, I only want to provide value to you, and I hope you're feeling some value by listening to it. We're not asking for any money. Just a nice old rate, review, subscribe. XOXO. Zaddy.